friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and thank you once again for checking in with us and listening and being part of our conversations. We have a great show this week featuring the lovely Catherine Jean Lopez, editor for the National Review, discussing some pro-life legends that we've recently lost. The pro-life movement definitely has some big shoes to fill with the passing of Deirdre McQuaid, who led the USCCB pro-life office for several years, doing so much for the unborn. Also, we lost the founder of Post-Abortive Ministries, the founder of Project Rachel, Vicki Thorne, who worked tirelessly helping women find hope after abortion. But first, as the war in Ukraine rages on, we check in with our friend of the show, Father Ben Keeley of Nazarene.org, who was recently in the Ukraine and can fill us in on all the different religious complications in that area, especially as we are concerned for everyone there, but of course, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Welcome back to the show, Father Ben. Thank you, Grace. It's always such a joy and pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, it's always uh, it's always so wonderful to get your opinion on things, which uh, from here on this, this uh, outpost in Florida sometimes seem very far away. Um, and I think it happens to many of us uh, American Catholics when we when we're looking at the big um, the big movements and history that we're watching happen and unfold in front of us. We want to have um, sort of a, a, a Christian-specific outlook so that we understand what's happening to our brothers and sisters, but that can be very difficult because that's not something that we get in the media. So when uh, I found out, as, as I did a couple of weeks ago, that you had been to Ukraine and seen the situation for yourself on the ground, and um, this week you, you wrote about your experiences in a great piece in the National Catholic Register called Rising from the Ashes in Ukraine. I knew that we had to have you on again so that you could give us your uh, on-the-ground uh, uh, look at at that, you know, what's happening there, but more specifically, what's happening to our brothers and sisters in the faith. Thank you, Gracie. Well, yes, it was a, a very powerful experience. I've been to Ukraine before twice uh, in 2016 and 2017 to Kiev or Ky Kiev and Lviv. Um, in comparative peace, although the Russians had, of course, invaded in 2014, but this time was definitely in a time of war. So it was uh, it was a powerful experience, but also a beautifully joyful experience because I was there for Eastern Catholic and Orthodox Easter. So I had two Easter's in a row: one uh, Western Easter the week before in England, and then the the Eastern Rite Easter in uh, in Ukraine. So two. Two Holy Thursdays, two Good Fridays, two Holy Saturdays, and two Easter Sundays. So it's very, very powerful. And those, and, and explain to us, Father, maybe you could be elementary with us. Explain to us um, how that's all arranged in, in the Ukraine as far as our, our Christian brothers and sisters, how that, how that breaks down into the Catholic Church and the, and the Eastern Rites. The majority of Ukraine is Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, but also now there is a significant breakaway group called the U Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Basically, they broke away from Moscow, from what's called the Moscow Patriarchate under Patriarch Kirill, who we know has been supporting 100% Putin and, and Putin's uh, assault on, on Ukraine. So the majority are either Russian in communion with Moscow or Ukrainian Orthodox. And then there's a significant Catholic minority who are Ukrainian Greek Catholic. Catholics, Eastern Rite Catholics. There are actually the, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, Greek Catholic Church, is the second largest of the Eastern Rite churches, second only to us, the Latin Rite Catholics. And then there's a very small number, very tiny minority 
of Latin Rite Catholic, like us, most of us in the West. But the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, as they're called, are a significant minority. And and are they in communion with the, our church? I'm sorry. Yes, Again, forgive the communion. ignorance. They're, they're Catholics. They're, they're in communion. They're for, for very quick sort of potted history in the in the late 16th century, a group of Orthodox, Russian Orthodox became Catholic, joined the church, accepted communion with Rome, including the great bishop and saint of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, St. Josephat, who I have a special connection with because I was on, ordained on the feast of St. Josephat. I, I didn't have any choice uh, nearly 28 years ago. I was just told, you're being ordained on November the 12th. And I looked up, well, well who's the saint? And it's St. Josephat. I said, who's St. Josephat? I've never <laughs> heard of the guy. So obviously then, but then I got a devotion to him and he's the great saint uh, who was a Russian Orthodox bishop, became Catholic in communion with Rome, and he was martyred for that. And then since then, they have been really consistently persecuted because of being in communion with Rome. And the persecution got to the most severe, uh, horrible time during the time of Stalin in 1946. He, he forced the entire Ukrainian in Greek Catholic Church, in communion with Rome, in communion with the Pope, he forced them to become Russian Orthodox. And so then, basically, from then on until 1989, when communism fell, they were underground. They were an underground church, no churches. They were all given to the Russian Orthodox, no seminaries. Well, everything was underground. Uh, seminaries underground, religious orders underground, catechesis so, so, underground. So under Stalin in Ukraine, the only church that was allowed to operate was the Russian Orthodox Church that I'm yes. a, that I'm a assuming, and maybe I knew at some point in my life, uh, was under the thumb of Stalin and under his control, his nominal control. Effectively. I mean, there were many great witnesses also within within the Russian Orthodox Church, many holy men and women martyrs, but the hierarchy was, was very much under the control. But he forced, yes, he forced the, the entire Ukrainian Catholic Church underground. It was suppressed hmm. for more than 40 years, and uh, many martyrs, not one bishop, they had, what, they had a full they had a full synod in 1946 in Lviv, the city I was in, in the west of Ukraine, a synod which voted, and we all know, knowing how the communists work, it was a false synod, they voted to become orthodox again, but of course it was a lie. Not one bishop actually voted, and so most of them were thrown into camps, Many of them died. There are many martyrs, men, women. I don't know if there are children, but certainly priests and bishops. A, a truly a crucified, uh, martyred church, but then rose. Well, the reason I wrote my article and called it Rising from the Ashes is because when, in 1989, communism fell, this church emerged from the underground, strong, beautiful, young priests, a very, very powerful witness of those 40 years of suppression. And it's beautiful to see we stayed in the Catholic University in Lviv, which is really only 30 years old. They've built all of this in 30 years through the great help of many Ukrainians throughout the world, but particularly in the United States and in Canada. They really supported. And the new, the fairly new Archbishop of of Philadelphia, Archbishop Boris Gudziak was the rector of that Catholic University in Lviv and helped found it. And uh, now is the Ukrainian Catholic Bishop of uh, Archbishop of Philadelphia. In the and USA. he was on our show recently. A really interesting man and obviously very holy. He's a very very revered figure in in Ukraine because because of what he did and his story is remarkable. Um, and I think he's. As they say, he's someone to watch. When Catholics in Ukraine see this Russian invasion and, and experience the Russian invasion, they're not very far removed from decades of Russian oppression and persecution and Russian-provoked martyrdoms of, of their faithful. Exactly, and this is why it's... A, it's so important, and I'm, again, I'm grateful to you for having me on, because it's important for us in the West Catholics to know the history, because that helps us understand the situation. It helps us to understand one of the reasons why Catholics, in particular, are fighting for their independence, because I spoke to one of the priests in the, in the Catholic University, and he said, 
we're already talking about what we might have to do if we went underground again. Um, I don't think it will happen, thanks be to God. But where it, where the Russians have won in, in the in the east, uh, in Donbass and these other regions, they are already beginning this persecution. They're already beginning to suppress the Ukrainian Catholic Church, telling them to change the name of it, telling them to name change the names of the churches. So, yes, that history is very fresh. The, these people remember what it was like to be under that sort of persecution. And so they're fighting. They're fighting for their lives, but they're fighting for their faith and their culture. From that perspective, why would Putin be somebody who would suppress the, the Catholic Church for sure? I mean, he obviously in Russia, people can be Catholic, can be Roman Catholic and Latin Rite Catholic. Why do the Ukrainians assume that he would follow through with the kind of suppression that the previous Russian dominating force would, would did in that time? First, because they have done it before. Second, because they are doing it. As I just said, mm -hmm. in, in mm -hmm. Donbass, in the East, they are already doing that suppression. Thirdly, because the Ukrainian, the, the Russian Orthodox Church doesn't believe, there are two things really it doesn't believe. It doesn't believe there's such a place as Ukraine. They don't believe it exists. They think it's Russia. That's part of the reason why they've invaded. But secondly, they, and it's a strong word to use, but I, I'm going to use it. They hate the Ukrainian Catholic Church. They think it's a, a false church. They think it's a, a fake church. It should never have left the Russian Orthodox Church. It shouldn't be in communion with Rome. So they really have, they despise, it's probably a better word than hate, but they despise the Ukrainian Catholic Church with so a particular... They, so they put the Ukrainian Catholic Church on a completely different level as they would Latin Rite Catholics living yes, in, in Russia. So these are this absolutely. is a completely different group of people for them. This is a sort of a breakaway people that should not have broken away, much like the Ukraine in general. Exactly. That's exactly right. Latin Rite Catholics, they would allow, they say, okay, you're, you're Latin, you're in communion with Rome, you're under the Pope of Rome, but they think the Ukrainian Catholics are, are breakaways, they're sort of they betrayed as it were they, because they have the same liturgy virtually. And we walked around especially on Good Friday into the different churches. You wouldn't really know which church you're in walking into an Orthodox church or a Ukrainian Catholic church because it's it's very much the same liturgy the same chant. So they, they think they are a, a church that's betrayed Russian Orthodoxy basically and that's why they have that particular dislike and, and real a desire that just they've said publicly i mean even in dialogue with with rome even in dialogue with the pope they they basically think that the church should not exist and this has been a real problem for ukrainian catholics even since their freedom emerged in 1989 they've they felt for a long time that rome rome doesn't really understand their position and also doesn't really give them the kind of support that they really need well that brings me to something that i wanted to ask you about that you that you mentioned in your piece and i'm going to read it to you many are concerned that with the naive optimism or willful ignorance authorities in rome have focused for too long on ecumenism with the russian orthodox at the expense of supporting powerfully and visibly um, uh, the Ukraine Greek Catholic Greek, Church. Greek Catholic Church. <laughs> You're right, UGCC. There is a real shock that the Pope has yet to name Russia as the aggressor, and I hope he will soon name the leader of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, Major Archbishop uh, Shevchuk, a cardinal, something that happened to the archbishops for predecessors. So you feel that Rome has too long been more focused on ecumenism with uh, the Russian Orthodox Church and not supporting this uh, Ukrainian church. Yes, it's very sad. It's not just something I feel. This is something the, the Ukrainians will, will tell you themselves. And unfortunately, it's not just under this present pope. It's, it goes right back to the time of Paul VI. The, the great Ukrainian bishop, Cardinal Slippy, who had been imprisoned by the communists from 1946 until 1963. He'd been in camps in Siberia. He was released and sent to Rome, and he requested that the title of patriarch, and not for him, but for, 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 the, for the church. Uh, and from Paul VI onward, we had that policy of what was called Ostpolitik, that, that way of trying to make peace, as it were, with the East, in theory, to preserve the life of the church. But in fact, it made life very difficult for the church. And for 60 plus years, really, there's been a desire for ecumenism with the Russian Orthodox Church. And the Catholic Church seems to have given so much. It's given almost everything and has received nothing back. And the Ukrainian Catholics feel that they've always been pushed to the sidelines uh, and especially Archbishop Shevchuk, uh, his, as I said in the article, his four predecessors have all been named cardinals. He has not. And there's a feeling now that, come on, okay, it's not working. Patriarch Kirill has blessed 
this invasion. He's blessed it. He's called it. He's even called it a crusade. This is against fellow Christians. He's called it a crusade. And people are saying, look, it's time. Just support the Ukrainian Catholic Church 100% now because this ecumenism really hasn't worked. Uh, it's a bit blunt to say it, but I think we have to tell the truth. And, and I'm reporting again, like I've done in, in Iraq and in Syria, I always say one has to tell people what they tell me. It might not be politically correct. It might not be fashionable. It might not be what people want to hear, but you have to report, as the scripture says, what we've seen and heard. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm talking to Father Benedict Keeley, all the way from England, who was recently in the Ukraine. So, wait, I, I need to stop you. So, the R Russian patriarch called this Russian invasion of the Ukraine a crusade? You have to, mm. you have to deepen, you have to uh, um, color that in for me because I'm having trouble understanding that. Well, <laughs> anyone uh, semi-normal would have uh, trouble understanding it. He, the Russians are alleging, it's all propaganda, the Russians are alleging that the Ukrainians are Nazis, and so Russia is cleansing Ukraine of Nazis. Archbishop Shevchuk, the, the leader of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, just the other day said that there is a desire to liquidate, liquidate the Ukrainian people, eliminate the Ukrainian people. Because as I said earlier, the Russians don't actually believe there is such a place. They think it's a, it's a myth. And so the desire, their, their so-called desire to get rid of Nazis, etc., etc., is part of this crusade. But it's all really an excuse. It's propaganda. You know, Gracie being Cuban-American, the essence of communism is a lie. They, they, and even though the Russians are not communists anymore, they're using the same sort of techniques. I mean, Putin was, as we know, a KGB agent. And, and this is the thing many people do not know, but it's factual, verifiable, Patriarch Kirill was a KGB agent. Uh, his name, he had a code name. All the previous patriarchs have been KGB agents. You mean while so, they were while they were patriarchs? Well, while they absolutely. were leading the church? Priest, they were also priest, working bishop, for the KGB? Priest, bishop. It was completely, the Russian Orthodox hierarchy was completely infiltrated by the KGB. But that's, so, that's terrifying, Father. But it's part of what, what this, is, this is part of the problem that we're dealing with. That's why one of the Ukrainian Orthodox, not, not Catholic, one of the Ukrainian Orthodox priests said to us when we asked him about Putin and Kirill, Patriarch Kirill, he said, Kirill is just a puppet of Putin. He does whatever Putin says. So he's just, as it were, the Patriarch is an arm of the Russian government. And so it's very distressing because there are many, many, of course, many good, holy Russian Orthodox priests, laity, even bishops, but the much of the hierarchy is very much controlled by the Russian government, unfortunately. So you write very movingly in your piece about being in, in the Ukraine and, and experiencing people's distress and at the same time that they're joyfully celebrating Easter. And that, that is very moving to think about people at war. Over Well over 2,000 Ukrainians have died in the war from this terrible aggression. And yet you, dis, you describe them as being people who are able to celebrate Easter in, in, in their packed churches, even when they, they see the Russian bear approaching, um, they're able to do this. So that that is very moving, I'm, and I'm very glad that we were able to read about that. We're able to read about that from you. That you were able to go there and, and tell us this. What do you suppose that now? From I'm asking you, maybe you're not the right person to ask, or maybe you don't have an opinion. But what should be our the rest of the world's? Um, what should be our our reactions as we see what's going on in Russia and Ukraine? Well, first for Catholics, as I always say to you, Gracie, we, we, we pray, and praying is, I always use the same phrase, it's not a last resort, it's a first resort. We should be praying for peace, but um, supporting, uh, I think, a valid defense of, of their homeland. They've been invaded. That's a fact. We have a, mm -hmm. well, well, there are discussions I know going on in Rome about whether this is a just war or not. And, but I think we all believe if our, if our homes are invaded, we have a, a natural God-given right to defend them and their country has been attacked and invaded and they have a right to defend themselves. We should also know more about it, which is part of this discussion we're having, know, know something of our heritage, because this is important as Catholics. Yes, where most of us, many of us who are listening or speaking are um, Latin right, we're both Latin right Catholics, but the Eastern churches are part of our heritage. 
heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, we are Catholic, so when we walk into a Ukrainian Greek Catholic church, we are we are part of that communion, even though they celebrate very differently. But then in terms of politics, well, yes, it's a difficult one to get into. We, we must seek peace, but also peace must be with justice. I think that would be the, the easiest way uh, of putting it. That we don't want a, we certainly don't want a third world war, which is being threatened. Mm-hmm. But we must be we must be strong and we must be fair and we must be just. What, what of the things that has uh, really made the, the West sit up and take notice is the bravery of the Ukrainian people because, you know, they are a tiny country and Russia Russia is just a, a, a tremendous force in the world and I think I remember hearing in the beginning a lot of people saying, the, you know, the Ukrainians just need to roll over and, and take it because how can they bear to stand up against uh, Russia. They have no chance. And yet this has been going on and on. And we've seen tremendous uh, bravery from the Ukrainian people. Can you tell us, um, do you see any, tell us some things that you saw that inspired you? Well, in one of the very powerful, one of the powerful things was on Good Friday, we went into a church in, in the downtown of Lviv. And it's actually a church where they've had many military funerals. And it was the Good Friday service, which is very, very beautiful, lovely chant. And they approached rather like we venerate the cross on Good Friday. They venerate an icon of the dead Christ. But they, they, they approach it on their knees. They crawl, as it were, crawl on their knees towards the icon. And then they kiss the icon. And the line to do that was going out of the church into the street. Oh, it was amazing. Just extraordinary. But also in the church... There were many, many photographs, big boards, uh, photographs of dead, of the of the military dead. So it's very somber, um, very powerful. But you can't deny the reality that this is a the, the evidence is so against what Russia says that there's no such place as Ukraine and that there's no such thing as Ukrainians. I mean, they all speak Russian. Most Ukrainians speak Russian, but now they want to speak Ukrainian. If you if you spoke Russian to them, they would probably get a little bit upset. So that was the first thing. But then to contrast that somberness on 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 well, the other thing was the the air raid sirens. I mean. We arrived on on Holy Thursday night and got settled into the to the Catholic University, and then we needed to to eat. So we went out to walk down to try and find a restaurant, and immediately the air raid siren went off. and And my friend who I was with, a journalist, said, "Well, we better run to the shelter." And I said, "Well, no, we've got to eat, and I need a beer." So <laughs> that's you got to you got to live. And I said, "If we're going to get killed, we're going to get killed. So we might as well just have something to eat." But Many of them were the same. They were very nonchalant about it. They just said, "Well, if it's if it's the time, it's the time," and they didn't run away from the church. If if it's it's funny, you can contrast it. I hate to do it, but with uh, what we went through for two years during COVID, when when we weren't allowed into the church because we might catch we might catch a disease. I well, was just thinking the same thing that we've they, uh, they, the they West we've been a- cowering in fear for two years. And here they we might have. get a missile. Yeah, they might get a missile dropping on the church. But I can tell you, Gracie, those churches were jam-packed full, jam-packed full. And it was a very powerful witness. And then on Easter Sunday, beautiful liturgy again, joyful, lovely chant, church full, men, women, children, families, somber, but joyful. It's that weird sort of paradox. But because they're a nation at war, there's that old saying, isn't there? There's no atheists in the foxholes. Mm-hmm. And people sometimes say that in a kind of a sneering way. But actually, it tells you what's really important. Um, and I was wondering with my friend, uh, the journalist, uh, certainly in England, we were saying, well, would people fill the churches in England if we were at war? And we were we were doubting that they would. Um, I think it's a little different in the United States. There's more faith. But, um, well, but Father, yeah. there, uh, one thing that's been missing in England and the United States has been these situations of, um, of, of great national unity and great national stress that and that does bring you to your knees and it brings you to god as mm. opposed to things oh, like no. as opposed to things like covid lockdowns um and this past weekend i don't know if you've been paying attention you probably have you pay a lot of attention to things that happen in the u.s but this past weekend we experienced uh, in the united states threats t- uh, and attacks of churches because of the 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 wonderful possibility that Roe v. Wade might be overturned, um, and I was thinking about all your work with the persecuted Christians, and and thinking that I never imagined that in, here in the United States we'd be thinking of ourselves as persecuted Christians because of something so wonderful as the possible overturning of the terrible Roe v. Wade uh, decision. Well, there's a very demonic 
side to this, we know that. But uh, I remember years ago, I think it was probably in 2019, 2018, when I was in Hungary at a conference about the persecuted, the Prime Minister of Hungary, who's a very good, strong Christian, he said, um, don't imagine that, that some of what's happening in the East will not come our way. Probably not our heads being chopped off, but... Uh, this kind of persecution, we've we've got to accept that. Um, uh, but also, we need to be a little bit more muscular about not bending over and and just sort of letting. Um, it was nice to see some good, strong Catholic men saying we're going to defend our churches, and uh, let's not. Um, well, that might even energize us, right, Father? I mean, if, well, if, if, if when it's it's when you think something might be taken from you that you that you that you wake up to the great injustice that's been perpetrated on your faith uh, by little drips drips and drops, one right? Way. Like little little one. drops at a time, but now suddenly we're facing something bigger and maybe it'll energize us to defend our faith. One would hope, Gracie, because uh, the faith must be fought for. I mean, faith must be defended, faith must be fought for, otherwise it's, uh, if it becomes weak, I mean, we think of the, the book of Revelation, remember the, the, the church that was uh, uh, vomited out, as scripture says, was the, the church that was lukewarm, <laughs> the church that was neither hot nor cold and I fear unfortunately for many of us in the West our church has been neither hot nor cold and and the Lord is pretty uh, this isn't us being politically incorrect the Lord himself is pretty clear what he will do with the church that's neither hot nor cold and indifferentism being indifferent is far worse almost than anything else I don't want to link it again to COVID but the fact that so many people didn't seem to really get that upset or, or care that their churches were locked is a worrying sign. Will, will, will we be strong enough if we if we get this kind of wave of persecution? Will we will we have the inner uh, guts, the inner fortitude to deal with what what might be coming? Let's pray because. Um, in some ways, we're no different to any of these other people that have suffered. Maybe when the time comes, that that strength emerges. That's what that's what Scripture says. Please God, that the Holy Spirit will aid us and give us the strength we need. Well, when we're praying for the Ukraine every day, as we do in Mass every day, and I hope that everyone who's listening also prays for the brave Ukrainians. Maybe we can spare a prayer for our own struggling churches that they be filled yeah. with the faithful and and that we all be brave and courageous as we face persecution. So thank you, Father, and for our listeners. Please go to the National Catholic Register website and read his really, really good piece on the Ukraine and, and you'll learn things that, that you wish you'd always known about these brave people. It's called Rising from the Ashes in Ukraine. Thank you, Gracie. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're checking in with our dear friend, Catherine Jean Lopez of the National Review. She's always uh, right on top of things with what, what I think are the most important stories and the most important ways of looking at the world, which include our faith and, and our commitment as, as Catholics, as Christians, to the dignity of, of every human life. This week, we wanted to talk to her because there's been, two, there, there's been some sad news, the passing of two pro-life greats. Deirdre McQuaid is one of, of these great women. She worked tirelessly for the unborn, serving the USCCB, as well as the founder of Project Rachel. Her name was Vicki Thorne. These are two wonderful women who did so much for the most vulnerable. Welcome back to the show, Catherine. Oh, thank you so much, Gracie. It's always a joy. Uh, and thank you for paying tribute to these two remarkable women. Starting with Vicky, she uh, she died very suddenly. She was the founder of post-abortion healing. Uh, period. She's starting in um, in Milwaukee. She uh, started the first model for post-abortion healing ministry, Project Rachel, which is the the ministry of the Catholic Church that is all over the country and all over the world even. Um, and I remember in the last couple of years, you know, I would get I would get these like text messages from her where she's, she would ask, do you know any religious sisters in, you know, and name an African country or something? Because somebody reached out to her, you know, who, who was, who had an abortion and is looking to help start a ministry. And, 
Um, she was just constantly making connections, relationships, and and to help people heal. You know, there's no there was no judgment about her. Like there was something so super accessible about her. Like you knew she was pro life. You knew she was against abortion. But the way she did it was just so loving. One of the sisters of life was describing her as a mom. Like you would just, she would be a mom to women who needed moms, you know, and needed to have somebody acknowledge that they are, you know, a woman who had an abortion as a mother because the culture says you're not. And so then the like grieving doesn't make any sense, right? Because if, well, if abortion doesn't involve a baby, then I'm not a mother. And so it just makes no sense. And it mm -hmm. just, it, it can drive someone crazy. And so anyway, what a blessing this ministry has been to countless women. And, and then Deirdre McQuaid, she, you know, the last time I worked with her when she was at the Bishop's Conference, because she she left the Bishop's Conference about five years ago to um, be a professional photographer. And um, while still being super involved in, in pro-life ministries in the D.C. area. And um, the last issue we worked on was assisted suicide and end-of-life issues. And um, she was, uh, she had worked on a series of videos. J.J. Hansen was was one of them who, he, he died of um, the same brain cancer that Brittany Maynard had. You, you probably remember back back um, a number of years ago, um, People Magazine was celebrating this woman who went to uh, Oregon to have um have mm -hmm. uh, to, to kill herself. And so anyway, Deirdre, after working in public policy and education on these issues, she she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she was such a living witness of everything we had talked about, you know. Wow. Um, now she was living it and she was living it with such grace. And how old was and she? She was, um, I think she was 51. She was, she was uh, still quite young. That's very um, young. And so has and so has so many young friends who watched this, you know, and um, watched, you know, the grace with which she suffered because she actually really believes what she was talking about when she was an activist in these issues. And so she was just such a, a beautiful witness to the truth of redemptive suffering, which is not easy stuff. And I, I don't I don't want um anyone to get the idea that this was like a Pollyannish end of her life or anything. Mm -hmm. She was, she was in awful pain at the end and it was very difficult, but she kept reminding herself that like God has a plan in this. And if I offer it up, it, you know, something that, that means something. And um, that's one of the greatest mysteries I think in, in our Christian life that is so hard to explain to non-Christians. And even now to many Christians and many Catholics who've lost that connection, that understanding no, of how suffering isn't all bad, how suffering has this great, this great, um, part of it that's so beautiful and good. Um, well, I think part of the problem and Deirdre, because she knew she was dying, she made a point to tell people, don't act like I'm a saint. You know, pray for me. Pray for my soul. And there's a really important point in that, I think, because to make ourselves feel better when someone dies, we, you know, we say, well, they're in a better place. And well, actually, our souls need purification. Mm -hmm. And so even really good saintly people will I have to go through a time of purification. You know, but, you, but don't you think we've lost we've lost the language, right? We've like totally you want, lost. You want to right. say to your friend whose whose mother just died, and she's and her mother obviously was a really good woman. You want to say, oh, she's with she's with God, she's with the angels, she's. And, but but you know, we know as Catholics that all of us need purification. It's very few people that die and right. are immediately no raised to heaven right right yeah no that's that that's my understanding and so i yeah no i really i get nervous when people say yeah she's in a better place kind of thing because yeah we we know that every soul needs prayers and um they're do you feel do you feel catherine yeah. when you say i'm praying for your father i'm praying for your mother do you feel sometimes because i do sometimes i say that and i pray for their I, that i that i'm praying for their soul and i think oh no they're they're thinking i'm implying something <laughs> that their parent isn't isn't in heaven yeah, I, maybe but i i find when i say that i'm praying usually the way i do it is i'm praying for you know your father and i'm praying for your consolation mm -hmm. and i think then then it's uh it's more palatable i think mm -hmm. okay but so I'm, I'm just i'm not saying it right i need to i need to refine well, my well, my condolences yeah you know maybe because when you include them in it 
I think it, it maybe it makes them feel more comfortable mm-hmm. because obviously, I mean, when we're grieving, it's a difficult time as is. And so, yeah, but it, it, it's super important to to not neglect praying for for the dead. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, if if the person we're praying for is already in heaven, like God will use those prayers for mm-hmm. somebody else. Yeah, the so. prayers are never wasted. Exactly, exactly. And so that's a beautiful thing to be able to have confidence in. But I mean, the reality is that we're all human. And so even, you know, we're talking about redemptive suffering here and, and a beautiful example. And But when, you know, when I have goodness, when I have a cold, I'm a whining, you know, <laughs> we are human and, you know, have to get back to the cross. And the cross is so hopeful because it's like... <sighs> Jesus suffered, you know, mm-hmm. and so there really is a union with God in your suffering. And it's, it, it hurts all the same and we don't want it all the same, but I mean, sometimes, sometimes what I pray for is the desire, you know, mm-hmm. the desire to suffer well, you know, um, because it's not, it's not easy stuff, but if you pray for the desire, then, you know, God's going to reward that. I feel I feel that I understood that better as a child even than I understand it now because I remember being taught when I was little by the nuns that that were my teachers about about that about about the value of suffering and how I remember feeling very identified identifying very strongly with with God on the cross and and how he glorified suffering and he and he lifted it to this realm which is beyond human understanding and that's what the divine life looks like when it's when it's walking on earth it it looks like God on the cross mm-hmm. i don't know i think as a child i was very much more much more more open to that and now as i as i grow older and i've suffered more <laughs> I think it gets hard sometimes in a w- one way intellectually I can appreciate it more in another way it's it's hard to to accept even though I I'm 100% sure that it's true that suffering suffering is, is is you know really elevates us and and is is in a way it's like um like a like a super highway to god right like we start to suffer and we immediately oh. turn to god and we immediately say god help me be with me carry this cross with me and sometimes I, if we're not suffering right so, sometimes if we're not suffering we can go days you know if we're not careful right. without really connecting with god well which is why uh, this time that we're in makes me very nervous because you know we, excuse me we went through the pandemic i would hope that um as as we you know return to this kind of new normal part of what we would take away from the, the pandemic is you know before before we had some sense of false security and you know the fact of the matter is that we're not guaranteed another hour <laughs> never mind mm-hmm. another day and we should not make assumptions about what tomorrow or the next year will look like obviously we have to do planning and be prudential but you know live today as if it's your last because there's no guarantee beyond that. And, and and but Catherine, when it, when we were thinking it might be our last, we also didn't put a lot of emphasis on our religious practices, right? I mean, the right, first thing right. I remember arguing with my pastor, actually not that long ago, they were they hadn't lifted in, in Miami. They didn't lift the dispensation to go to mass until very recently, actually. Oh wow! And I kept telling the pastor, I said, Father, you have to reach out to all these people I know in our in our parish who are watching mass on Sunday. Yes, they're watching the mass, but because of COVID, but they're going to Target on the weekends and they're going to parties and their kids are going to... So they've missed the, the understanding. They've missed the point. Right. I remember uh, Cardinal Dolan telling a story to me about um, there was a, a past... Uh, the priests of a parish, I think, in somewhere in upstate New York, they, um, they were friends with the local grocery store manager and they got cut cardboard cutouts of themselves that they put in the uh, the doorway of the grocery store. And it basically the message was, if you can come here, welcome back to church. <laughs> oh, that's I fabulous. I love that. And he, he, he story. It was around Christmas time, 2020. And um, one of the pastors went into a liquor store to buy a gift for someone. And um, and he runs into all these parishioners. And the parishioners are like, oh, Father, we miss you. And, and he said, the doors are open. I'll see you on Sunday. <laughs> we got so used to um, not 
you know, not being at mass, that there are, there are people who have not come back. And I know. Well, do you think? Do you think that pandemic was longing for mass? Yes, later. longing for mass. Do you, you know what I think might be the problem? Number one, that a lot of people were going to mass out of habit. And it's right. just something they do on Sundays. And that's not a problem. That's wonderful. But the the problem part is that they have, they don't, they no longer understand they have an obligation to go to Mass. And then I guess what? the third and issue is that they're not in love with the Mass. <laughs> so there's well, three. Right. That, uh, that, that question of, you know, we, we've seen polls where we're told that people don't believe in the real presence. And if you do not believe that God himself is on the altar, making himself available to you again in union with the first sacrifice you know well then i understand why you don't want to you, you don't bother um but if you believe that that's true that the real presence is true then there's nothing on earth that could keep you from there mm-hmm. maybe part of that is being catholic in a very protestant country where you people People naturally fall into the habit of thinking that you go to services or you go to you go to the local church because you're going to be edified and you're going to hear a great sermon. And, and then the sacramental part of it, which is strictly Catholic or almost strictly Catholic, is not part of our it's not part of our language and we're not being catechized properly about that. Right. And then you add to it, you know, um, all those months depending on where you were even longer where the church itself was saying oh never mind mm-hmm. uh, that, that that isn't a great uh catechesis for people either you know um i i think that part of what we need to do you know i know the bishops are talking about a eucharistic revival and that's all fine and good but i think you know on a on to a one-to-one basis, you know, inviting people back, talking about like what we just did, what, you know, what what the mass is and what it means to us. I mean, I used to say before the pandemic that I couldn't live without going to confession. Well, oh my goodness, when I had to, it was ugly. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, not going to confession to me is like not taking a shower. Like you would never think to not take a shower, right? Mm-hmm. And so, likewise with confession, like I try. I go every week. It keeps me honest. It keeps me, you know, feeling like, you know, I'm on the right track. You know, I'm a sinner, but I keep going back to God for his mercy and and it gives me strength. And honestly, I think we need to talk about such things more because otherwise it's just a thing we don't want to do or Mm -hmm. an obligation. But I don't even think... Well, I'd be, you know, I'd I'd be more happy with obligation than with what it's mostly thought about, which is a sort of a therapeutic exercise. Um, true. And, true. and so I think obligation is actually, I don't know, I, I focus a lot on obligation. I don't know why, it must be my upbringing, but I feel that a lot of wonderful things in our lives are obligations. And that's where our fulfillment and our flourishing comes from when, and the fulfillment of our obligations. And it's not a popular thing in a, mm-hmm. in a world, mm-hmm. in a modern culture where everything's about being your own true self and <laughs> living your <Right>. best life. <laughs> but, in, but in my experience, the faithful the faithful fulfillment of my obligations is where all my happiness ends up being all my flourishing ends up being all the peace that i have in my life comes from the fulfillment of my obligations and that's that's the that's the beautiful obligation of my life no to st- to try to stay in a state of grace through going to confession every week and and making making that beautiful visit to to calvary that i make every day in the mass well catherine we started out talking about um, two really important two women, souls. two beautiful yeah. souls who have gone on ahead of us, Deirdre McQuaid and Vicki Thorne, who founded Post-Abortion Ministry, which we didn't get to talk about. Uh, I, I happen to really love post, post-abortion ministry because I've seen it in action and I've seen souls be completely transformed. And, and more than that, souls that thought of themselves outside the pale, and I'm talking about men and women, um, people who thought of themselves as having transgressed um, so far that God could never find them again, really coming home and and resting in the mercy of God. And that's such a beautiful thing to watch. It's really powerful. And the most important message is there is no sin that anyone can commit that is outside the bounds of God's mercy. He wants to forgive you. Yeah, no, the confessional is such a powerful place. And if you don't want to just randomly walk into a confessional, then, you know, you can make an appointment with the priest. Yeah, I think you would, um, 
you'll be so, so blessed. I, I think that's one of the most important messages that we could convey to people that um, no sin is too big for God to, to forgive, mm-hmm. you know. I know, you know, you, you say those things, but then when you're carrying that sin around, it's yeah. it's very difficult to imagine that right. kind of mercy. But but we know it. We know it's real. We know it's real. We watched God on the cross forgiving everyone around him. So if, if he could forgive, you know, the greatest the greatest transgression, right? He can forgive our, our, our relatively smaller yeah. ones. He forgived killing God. That's, mm-hmm. that's pretty big. <laughs> that's pretty big. We nev- Humans never did anything worse than that. So, right, right. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we thank love to hear. You. We love your voice on our show. We love your your witness and the way that you you always point to, to where we should all be looking, towards the mercy of God and, and His love for us. So thank you. Well, I'm just trying to keep myself looking in the right direction. (laughs) Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us the fifth Sunday of the Easter season. We will enter into Jesus' words during the Last Supper, looked at through the knowledge of the resurrection. Jesus speaks to us of His and the Father's glory and the way it will be manifested. Now, He says, is the Son of Man glorified, and God the Father glorified in Him. That glorification begins paradoxically with what Jesus himself would suffer right after saying those words. His arrest, trial, crucifixion, death, and resurrection. While humanly humiliating, it's ultimately the fullest epiphany of who God, who the God of love is, allowing his creatures even to try to murder him in order to save those murderers. St. Paul would write to the first Christians in Corinth, Christ crucified seems scandalous to Jews and foolishness to pagans, but actually puts the full power and wisdom of God on display. Or as he penned to the Christians in Philippi, Paul says, Jesus became obedient even to death on a cross, but therefore God highly exalted him so that every knee should bend and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus' crucifixion, rather than being the most embarrassing and lowest moment in human history, is actually, when looked at with faith, the greatest revelation of who God is, because God is ultimately love, and Golgotha shows it. As we see, however, in this Sunday's Gospel, that's not the application Jesus gives of his glory. Rather than focusing on divine love exalted among two thieves, he describes the love he wants to see in and among us. I give you a new commandment, he says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you also should love one another. This is how all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. God's glory is meant to be manifested not just on the cross, but in the way we lay down our lives in love for each other, supreme moments of heroism, and in ordinary daily moments of self-giving sacrifice. Just as it is paradoxical that God's glory would be shown in a gruesome public crucifixion by his own creatures, so it's surprising that Jesus says it will be shown by the very behavior of those creatures who, receiving his love, remain in it and share it to the same standard as that with which they were loved by God. God's glory, in other words, is shown by loving as God loves. In giving us his love, not just the example of love, but by giving himself love incarnate, Jesus has given us his glory. The way that we reveal that glory is by letting that love overflow in our mutual love, which is meant to remind everyone of the love of God. The same Holy Spirit who is the love between the Father and the Son and the eternal Godhead is given to us to help us to receive God's love, love God in return, and love each other with the very love of God. This reflection until now, it might seem perhaps too deep theologically and not practical enough. But that's because Jesus' words, as I have loved you, so you also should love one another, can, after 2,000 years of hearing them, come off as flat. But they should be revolutionary. They should provoke in us a cry of objection. How can we possibly love like God loves? They should provoke wonder that God himself would call us to his divine standard. Then they should lead us to pray as we beg for what we need to live up to that standard. But for most Christians, love one another as I have loved you is the most watered-down line in sacred scripture. Many of us think we love by the fact that we have sympathy for others, that we don't hate others, that we hope they have a good life and don't stick our nose into their business, or might give one or two bucks to someone on the street every once in a while. 
Others of us, while professing to be Christians, don't even rise to that metric, but instead think we can hate rather than love our enemies because we convince ourselves they hated us first. We demonize figures we think are unworthy of our love, like those committing grave evils and injustices, Vladimir Putin and the war in Ukraine, Chinese, Cuban, and Venezuelan communists, abortion doctors and pro-abortion politicians, family members and former friends who have wronged us, and the list just grows. The coarseness of our polarized culture has led many Catholics on Twitter, for example, to become specialists in attacking, criticizing, insulting, mocking, humiliating, and even condemning those with whom they disagree, even fellow Catholics who maybe think differently on liturgical matters or a particular decision of the Pope or of our bishops or other things. While we justify our grievances and behaviors based on those grievances, Jesus is asking us to love one another as he has loved us on Calvary. Which is it going to be? The consequences are enormous, not only to our relationship with Jesus and our eternal salvation, but to the mission of the church. Jesus tells us very clearly this Sunday that the way others will know we're his followers, the way we'll glorify God, is through really loving each other, sacrificing for each other, forgiving each other, treating others with affection, and not just doing so a little, but loving with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength. The corollary is also true. If we don't really love one another in deeds, then we will show we're not Jesus' followers, but fakers, hypocrites, bad Catholics. Even if we happen to be ordained or made religious vows, or have given millions to Catholic schools and universities, or known among our circles as the most devout. When we don't love one another, we give scandal. Therefore, out of love for God and His glory, out of love for others and hope that they'll come to know, love, serve, and be happy with God in this life and forever, we need to get very practical about prioritizing love for others, starting with those whom we meet every day, those we live with, work with, go to school with, interact with. What sacrifice do we make for them? Do we love them with affection? Do we, are we willing to die for them if necessary? If we're really going to manifest God's glory through the way we love others, however, then we must also turn to the way we love even those we don't like. She says in the Sermon on the Mount, it's easy to love those who love us. Even the pagans do that. But he calls us to love even those who have made themselves our enemies. What do we do toward those who drive us crazy, who speak ill of us, who seek to harm us? It's not enough just not to retaliate by lowering ourselves to their level. Jesus wants us to rise to his level, to love them, sacrifice for them, fast for them, pray for their conversion, forgive them before they ask, and trust them to his mercy, and help them out should they be in need. What a tremendous witness is given whenever anyone loves like that. This Sunday in St. Peter's Square, Pope Francis will canonize ten new saints. The saints are those who give God glory through their loving action. And these ten, in different ways, have all done so. St. Titus Bransma, a Dutch Carmelite journalist, defended the Jews in print and was arrested by the Nazis and killed in Dachau. St. Charles de Foucault, a desert trappist, recognized that Christians and Muslims did not genuinely love each other in practice. And so at great risk sought to bring that love even to desert Bedouins, being killed eventually by Algerian marauders. Indian layman St. Devashalayam Pillai, a convert from Hinduism, sought to witness the love of God to his former fellow Hindus and unmask the lack of love in the caste system for which he was arrested, tortured, and martyred. St. Justin Russellillo showed particular love for poor boys and girls with vocations to the priesthood or religious life, whose families didn't have the resources to pay for their religious training, as well as for seminarians, religious, and even priests who had temporarily abandoned the vocations because of injustices. St. Marie Rivier founded a religious order to help people love each other and forgive anti-Christian persecutors after the atrocities of the French Revolution. St. Maria de Jesus Santo Canale and Santa Maria Domenica Montovani both founded religious institutes to care for the sick, poor, disabled, abandoned, and elderly. St. Cesar de Boo, St. Maria Francesco Rubato, and St. Luigi Palazzolo all founded religious orders to educate and catechize young people who otherwise would have received no education so that through reading, writing, and praying, they might in their own lives build up families and society in the love of God. All ten of these new saints revealed through giving their life out of love for others something of the glory of God and his love shining through human creatures. Each of us is meant to give God that same glory through our love.
This Sunday, as we prepare to receive within Christ himself and the glory of his Eucharistic humility, as we prepare to receive his overflowing love enfleshed within us, let us ask for the grace to manifest his glory by the way we care for each other in our parish, in the way together with them, that that love overflows to change the world, as it did in these two, ten new saints now raised to the altars. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 